Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. Tuesday the 9th of January, cold but bright here in TW11. Tuesday the 9th of January, the day when Tom Siegel, price-wise from the Racing Post, their leading anti-post tipster, steered his readers in the direction of gentleman's game for the Cheltenham Gold Cup. We ask his trainer, Mouse Morris, later in the show, he's already won a Gold Cup with War of Attrition, where the Siegel has gone the right way. It's well worth listening. An Irish challenger closer at hand takes his chance in the Lanzarote Hurdle, one of the feature races at Kempton Park at the weekend. That horse's name is Prince Zaltar. His trainer is Philip Rothwell. Philip Rothwell is enjoying his best ever season. He tells me why later in the show and also assesses the chances of Prince Zaltar at the weekend. Kempton, Warwick, this weekend's feature venues in Great Britain, both part of the Jockey Club racecourse's portfolio. And the Jockey Club has come under fire, as have all British racecourses, for a perceived failure to disclose significantly their media rights payments to the sports stakeholders. Uh, that is about to change, according to a press release that has come out this morning, which also details a significantly increased prize money contribution and executive contribution for 2024. As I welcome in the Jockey Club's Chief Executive, Nevin Truesdale. Nevin, first of all, before we get to the media rights payments, just give us the bare bones of the prize money commitment for the next few months. Yes, good morning, Nick. I'm very pleased to be making this announcement today, as you've um, cited in your introduction, um, breaching £60 million, um, of prize money being offered across Jockey Club race courses in 2024 for the first time. Um, that's about a, just over a million increase on the equivalent for 2023 on eight fewer fixtures. Um, executive contribution as part of that increasing from 31.1 million to 31.8 million. And I think in the in the light of you know the headwinds that I think the whole industry is facing in terms of certainly inflationary costs, cost of living, you know, our, our online betting turnover down eight percent, two million increase in um, in energy costs versus 2019, two million increase as a result of national living wage. So big big cost headwinds combined with the obviously the affordability squeeze on the online turnover that we're aware of. I'm very pleased that we're making this announcement and being able to show that yet again we're prioritising your prize money as a as a central cog, a central oil, if you will, that, that that keeps the engine of this sport running and very very important to all of us. Okay, I'll talk about um, the horsemen and media rights in a moment. First of all, though, I want to talk about the consumer. You've committed to spending 11.7 million over the next year on upgrades to racecourses. How will those be manifested, and where? Yes, so again, across most of the portfolio is the answer, Nick. I mean, the fact is we spent um, very little, as you can imagine, over the COVID period on um, 
on on upgrades on, on maintenance in terms of upgrades to terms of trainers facilities restaurants but even basic stuff like you know lifts and railing and and things like that that people just take for granted all of these things cost a lot so it will be the answer is it will be across um the whole portfolio and it will be um it, it's still catching up a lot of it from over the COVID period um which, which set us back quite a long way and we're obviously having to balance all those different investment requirements up against prize money, um, as we've talked about, against you know the investing in the future customer experience or, or digital um, app development and and, and and all of that that people don't necessarily notice, but all of which is really important to to, to keep to keep the sport open, accessible, welcoming to all those people who want to attract to it and keep in it. All right, there's been a growing cla- a growing clamour, Nevin, for um, increased disclosure of media rights payments to racecourses and how much of those media rights payments are then um, seen in, in prize money. Uh, what are you going to do? Yes, well, I mean, I think the, first, the important thing to point out here, Nick, is that we've been doing this for probably two and a half years now. The, the Jockey Club, we made a decision about yeah, two, two and a half, three years ago. We were going to go out and start talking directly to um, all the bodies you'd expect, the NTF, the ROA, um, NARS, the TBA, Judmont. I mean, we've seen a lot of the major trainers as well, Paul Nichols, Nick Alexander, um, Rafe Beckett, uh, William Haggis, Harry Fry and so on. I think we've, we've seen about 120 people now. And what we've been doing there is we've been disclosing, opening the drivers of them, showing um, you know, the, the trends on them over a 10-year period, and being very open about the whole business model, how the income streams work, how the cost streams work. Um, I think we've had about 39, 40 different meetings to see those different 120 people. And it's been a it's been a very comprehensive and detailed exercise. And one, I think, that has been really helpful to hopefully help people understand how the sport actually fits together yeah. and, how the, and how our decisions get made. So I think that's why we, that's why we left a little bit scratching our heads the weekend, some of the remarks that were made, because our, our books have been open for quite a long time. And what we're doing today, really, um, is a reaffirmation of that. It's saying we're, we're actually going to go even further um, in, in light of some of the some of the, the recent debates and say that, you know, we, we are very open to showing everything and, and, and showing people how, how this business operates and the investment decisions we make. So what percentage of your of your profit or your media rights payments go into prize money at the moment? Well, in, it, it's been trending in the sort of sixty to sixty three to sort of sixty six percent. And if you if you look at that back in the old days of the old prize money agreements, which I think a lot of us are very keen to get back to some sort of commercial agreements, and certainly today's announcement hopefully is a step in that direction. But the the premier tier um, threshold, I think, in those was forty percent, if I'm correct. So we're obviously well above that as a group. But I think we need to be careful about bandying around certain percentages of certain numbers you know if, if i'm looking if, if i was looking at an airline i wouldn't be looking just at, say econo- economy seat tickets versus um versus um you know uh one other cost like fuel you've got to look at the whole pnl in the round and say what is the right number to be investing versus all the other priorities so i think that's the that's why transparency is so important to be able to show people the whole picture so, so just to reaffirm that, you, you say that between 60 and 66% of your media rights payments are directly paid into your prize money pot. Yeah, so over time, I mean, the, the, this year, the, the number this year, if, if you do the calculation, it's, a, it's around 66, 67% for, for, the, for, the, for what we're setting ourselves in, in 2024. So, well, what have you set yourself? In terms of that, and that, that's what that's what we have. You know, that's where that's what we're budgeting for. But in terms of what, 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 what would be your total media rights payment that you're you're budgeting for for 2024? 
it's bit, well, it obviously depends on betting turnover, but we are in the region of 45 to 50 million. Okay, so you, across the portfolio, and of course that that varies dramatically by race in terms of a fixture. You've you've got the sorry, the, the Grand Nationals, the Cheltenham Festivals on one side, and you know Class Fives lower down the pecking order on the other side. They're they're all you, you've got to look at the round rather than just on a sort of per, per unit basis. Okay, so so 40, 45 to fifty million pounds total then in in media rights payments, and then sixty to sixty six percent of that directly diverted into prize money. And then how do you split that up across the group? Do you split it up across the group on the basis of which courses have generated the most in terms of media rights payments or do you that you then make a value judgment on that based on the needs of your own race courses but it's a combination of both to be honest it's looking at the whole program it's it's definitely looking at all those drivers you've just mentioned nick in terms of what drives betting turnover what drives um you know the the, the attractors of the of, of the product at each level but you've got to look across the whole program and say you know, strategically where where should we be where should we be, we be placing our, our investment you know, to, to compete and make sure that we're, we're optimising um, both runner numbers and also um, being competitive at each level of the programme? Now, obviously, you're not, looking at a, you're not looking at it on a course-by-course basis. You're looking at it really across the, the whole race programme. You're saying that the books are going to be thrown fully open and anybody can see anything whenever they want to see it. The jockey clubs run under a royal charter. It's thereby open to maybe more scrutiny than perhaps um, a regular organisation or regular profit-making company uh, might be. Does that include, for example, disclosure of salaries and, and so forth? Well, I mean, we'll certainly give cost breakdowns to you know, in terms of up, up to a point of people people who want to see. We're, we're agreeing at the minute with Thurbid Group of a very clear set of sort of you know parameters about how the income and costs will be, will be looked at, and, and and that definitely will include you know what one of the one of our key lines is obviously how much we're paying our people, but ultimately we've we've got to be paying the right salaries to get the right quality of people in and and, and keep them in the business so that we're you know so, so that we're continuing to invest for the long term good of the sport. Okay. Just a couple more questions, Evan, while I've got you on the phone. First of all, e- excellent to see that the, the race at, uh, that was supposed to take place last weekend at Sandown has been re- rerouted to Warwick. But um, uh, sharp-eyed observers have noticed that there's 25 grand off the prize money pot and you're, it's being redirected within the same group. Can you explain why there's a 25% shortfall when, when the yeah, race has been made? I mean, obviously, when these races get redirected, you're always looking, you're looking at a number of different factors that go into the prize money. You're looking at the executive contribution, which obviously we're putting in still a substantial amount. You're looking at what sponsors putting in. Um, you're looking at the rate card, and, and all of those things um, are variable. All of those things change when it's when it's moved. So I think I think the key thing is you know the race is going ahead. Um, some of the numbers have changed, but on, on all three of those levels, and, and it's a question of what what everyone involved can afford to try and get the race on. But presumably, you're putting the same executive contribution into the into the race this weekend as you would have done last weekend. Yeah, I mean we, we've got to look at that in the round, obviously, in terms of the the rest of the car work. But yes. Okay, so, but you're not putting the same executive contribution into the race as you were last weekend. Um, we're looking. We're, I mean, we're putting the same executive contribution into the whole card at work, and obviously looking at then what we what we bring over from Sandown. Okay, but so you can you can you can end up spending the same, but you're not going to spend more in order to compensate for the shortfall. That's pretty much what you're you need saying. to be. You, obviously, you could you go. You've got to look at that. Not in terms of the the, the payments people would have had had that had that card gone ahead. Okay, and just final question. I, this I, I've I've almost felt bad for Kempton because we've been giving it a bashing a, a, a little bit since since King George weekend, and everyone acknowledges all the good things that are done at that race course, particularly the maintenance of the track and the facilities for for jockeys and trainers, uh, which are very very rarely complained about in any sense. But obviously, uh, during the King George meeting, there was a significant. 
um, noise about the fact that it wasn't really um, a facility that was commensurate with staging a grade one race during a holiday period. Can you promise some uh, some increased uh, capital expenditure in Kempton Park to, to make it a facility that is fit to hold uh, a, a big grade one Christmas holiday festival? I, mean, I think we, we look at all of our investment in our all of our infrastructure in the round. Nick and Kempton's clearly near the top of that list. I mean, I think we would all accept that there are bits of it that, that do need um, work that are that are um, a little bit in places outdated. But I think um, we, we, we've obviously got um, very significant um, pressures on our, on our P&L and our cash flow, but but absolutely, Kempton is near the top of our list in terms of our, our long-term property master plans and what we want to do to upgrade and improve our facilities. And I would entirely accept that um, you know for, for staging what was an absolutely fantastic day and is always a brilliant day. Um, we, we we've got we've got to find a way of of, of improving its um, of improving the facilities and supporting the Kempton team and the brilliant work that they do um, in in putting on such a brilliant couple of days. And can we categorically now say that any of those plans from a few years ago to turn it into houses and to develop it and to reinvest that money into other tracks is now not even in the long grass, but completely off the off, off, off the park? Yeah, that's all, that's off the park for, for definitely for, for for the foreseeable. I mean, there are obviously plans, as you'd expect. We're always looking at. Um, long-term plays in terms of how we utilize value from all of our assets not core and non-core now that obviously racing's at the heart of everything we do so we've got to make sure that that's prioritized but you know if, if there if there were opportunities in and around the site that, that were commensurate with you know racetrack running and development in other bits of the land that we, we could we could agree with the council and obviously we'd have to look at that if that if that gave us a big capital receipt but but nothing in the pipeline at the minute absolutely that threatens the racetracks long-term future all right that was nevin truesdale chief executive of the jockey club now welcome in paul johnson the chief executive of the national trainers federation the ntf one of the organizations which comes under the umbrella of the thoroughbred group which would be brokering any kind of commercial partnerships with the race courses uh, what did you make of what Nevin had to say as regards transparency, Paul Johnson? Is it is it sufficient for for you and your members? I'd react by saying it's a very welcome development. Um, as Nevin has pointed out, the Jockey Club have been um, sharing some of their numbers over a period of time now at a, an aggregated level. This now gives us an opportunity to drill down into some of those and have a bit more, or a lot more transparency about what happens on a more per race course level which is pretty important to us at the moment and then the, the question of whether or not that's enough of media rights again that that's that's something we need to get into in some more specific detail because it, it's not really for me to sit here and say what what percentage is right or wrong you, you need to get into the actual detail of how how the whole thing works and how, and i think nevin said in his um his interview that you need to look at these things in the round and have you secured similar commitments from arc and other race courses moving forward that they will um share the, the similar level of, of transparency as regards their media rights we have been speaking to a number of race courses um some have been more forthcoming than others um so we've we're in a position where a number of race courses have actually um uh, said that they will be very open with us and have been so we've got meetings booked with with some other race courses and um, there are some that we're um we're, we're not engaging with quite at the moment but we hope to and um, I think there'll be a there'll be an announcement um, perhaps later in the week from the Fabric Group that details some of that. Okay, who has been cooperative? Well, I won't go into the list at the moment, Nick, because um, a because I might forget somebody who's been quite helpful, and um, I don't want to do that. And um, b I think we'll um, 
we'll come to that in the next couple of days. Okay, so we, we are expecting an announcement on that. Yeah, I think there'll be something coming out on Thursday probably about um, uh, where, where we're up to in, gen, in more general terms, yeah. Okay, um, could you talk about commercial partnerships? And how you, as the thoroughbred group, so I either, uh, or you, as the NTF, as part of the thoroughbred group, so the uh, parent uh, parent organisation that, or the, the umbrella organisation, I should say, that incorporates uh, owners, trainers, uh, stable staff, and jockeys. Uh, what a commercial agreement might look like with the with the racecourses relative to what exists at the moment. Just break that down into 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 simple terms for me. Okay. Well, I'll start by saying saying that um, at the moment nothing exists. Um, barring a structure of minimum values, <clears throat> which um, that's the only mechanism by which racecourses are committed to what they have to put into prize money um, at the moment. Um, that's not a sufficient mechanism because uh, they can you can always manage your way through that. Racecourses could downgrade programs, etc., to, to lower their costs. So um, what we're looking at trying to put in place, and we've been working on for um, over over 12 months now, is a proper partnership between racecourses and the thoroughbred group which defines what what is contributed to prize money ensures that there's a proper flow of money that as it comes into the top of the sport that that money filters down to the participants and they're being uh, rewarded in a suitable way for the work they're doing and, and that their businesses are more sustainable part of that is the way we see it is that you, you you need to be more nuanced than perhaps the old media rights deals were because what you're trying to create is a level starting line where all of the race courses are able to contribute to to compete with each other over their contributions and you can put in place minimum levels of contribution across say all racing revenue or all racing profit or a hybrid of those things perhaps and um and beyond that then you encourage race courses to compete with each other and those that do more should then get more of the perks that exist in the sport around funding and fixtures and some of the other softer things. All right, Paul Johnson from the National Trainers Federation there. And before him, the chief executive of the Jockey Club, Nevin Truesdale, responding with some haste to the more recent urgent calls for racecourses to disclose, disclose their media rights payments. Uh, and we got a fairly clear number there, as I welcome in Jack Keane uh, from The Sun, as to, as to exactly what the jockey club were forecast to earn through media rights and exactly what percentage of that they were putting back into prize mate what did you make of it jack morning nick yes that's the sort of transparency i think that a lot of um horsemen have, have been after for for a while um obviously this is never alluded to it there it's been a quite a long thorough process where they've been speaking to racing's participants behind the scenes um this has obviously been a story that's rumbled on for years and years uh, it's the volumes turned up recently, hasn't it? With the likes of Nick Alexander, it's been especially vocal. Um, Jane McGiven, I thought she was very eloquent on the issue on your on your Sunday program uh, the other day. But it, it, it's great to see that racing's leaders are listening to this. The Jockey Club are listening. Um, clearly, they've been open with the thoroughbred group behind the scenes. But it can only be a good thing that they're going to be more transparent for for anyone and everyone who's who wants to see. You know, see the books and see what's going on behind the scenes. It's a, it's a very positive step. Uh, there's been you know suspicion and doubt behind the scenes on the side of trainers and owners for a while. So this is this is a, a very good step in the right direction and fair play to them. A couple of things occurred to me here. First of all, the extent to which this is something of a of a reaction to to the conversation that was prompted by uh, um, a reported 
intervention on the part of uh, Peter Saville again last week. Now, I know we don't know the details of that, but it just accelerated the conversation, it seemed, and and pressed the thoroughbred group into into getting on the front foot w- with what they themselves were doing, which I suspect may well have prompted this from from Jockey Club Racecourse. And I, I wonder the extent to which that's now got in ahead of any any announcement that Saville himself wants to wants to make. And the the second thing that it, that occurred to me was what pressure will this apply to other racecourse groups, particularly ARC, to do something similar? And indeed, will will ARC, who a, a, a different type of company and run very differently, um, accede to the requests of the thoroughbred group? Yeah, you're right. I, I, there was a piece in the Racing Post last month where Julian uh, Richmond Watson, who's, who's the chair of the thoroughbred group, uh, he, he was quoted as saying that some racecourses are a lot more open uh, as regards their the financial situation than others. And I, I suggest he was alluding to the conversations with the jockey club behind the scenes here uh, over the last couple of years. But whether or not that is going to force ARC to to do the same, I, I would be quite sceptical. I, I, obviously, they're, they're held to a different standard. Obviously, the jockey club are governed by a royal charter. We, we hold them to a higher standard and they're under a lot more scrutiny. ARC are a, a private profit-making company, whether or not they're they're going to be keen to go down the same route. I'm, I'm not so sure, but um, it's going to be very interesting to see how how this develops over the next few weeks and months. And obviously, you, you alluded to to Savile there. Um, I, I think it's you know he, he will label him as a, one of the great disruptors of the sport. And I think some of the sports top brass are very keen to get out on the front foot. You know, make it seen that they're being proactive here. They're not being forced into any sort of action by by someone like Savile. Okay, quite rightly, back to the horses now. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the programme, price-wise, Tom Siegel from the Trade Daily, the Racing Post, he has put up the thrice-raced-over fences gentleman's game as his selection for the the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Now, I have to declare an interest here. My late mum co-bred this horse with Dave Futter from Yorton Farm, so clearly I've I've always got a a vested interest in how he gets on. But he's not a difficult horse to, to like, even though we've seen relatively little of him. I did, however, um, curse Siegel a bit. I, I thought, oh, has he has he done the right thing, Mouse Morris, putting him up for the for the Gold Cup, or or has he put the mockers on him? The only thing he did he did put a war of attrition. That's the only thing. <laughs> did he really? He did. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. This is good. This is a good sign then. To my delight. <laughs> To my delight, Tom Siegel has put up gentleman's game for the Gold Cup, um, Mouse Morris. Uh, you, you said he had a little hold-up after Weatherby that stopped him running in the um, Galapin des Champs race at, at Christmas. Is he over that? No, he, he got a bruise and went right up into his foot, which is why it took so long. Just just tell me what how he is and what the likely plan is. The likely plan is he get an entry in... Uh, I wouldn't be that keen to go to Cheltenham. So, n- you'd rather you don't want to go to the Cotswold Chase, no? I prefer not to. Yeah. Although he he get an entry in it just to give me an option, mm-hmm. uh, and he he get an entry in the Leopardstown. In the in the Irish Gold Cup. Yeah, which he'd obviously be, be a bit short from, but it would be him right. Or I'll bring him up to Leopardstown and give him give him a good bit of work. On, Go straight to Cheltenham. So, so there is there is a possibility he might not actually have a race between now and Cheltenham. It depends how I get on now in the next couple of weeks, Nick. You know he's not he's not simple. But at the, at the, we say if you were to stick me to it today, 
I'd be going to Leopardstown. Okay, for the for the Irish Gold Cup. Yeah, even if he, even if he probably would take the run, you know. Okay. Um, and when you when when you say he's not simple, obviously you and I have spoken about him an awful lot as a as a horse. He's a he's a very easy horse to deal with as a personality, but he just has a he's a, just a bit prone to doing silly things and and putting you on the back foot. Yeah. Well, no, he's a gent. He's a pure gent. In fairness, to him, you know. And if you if you ended up at a Gold Cup with him with just three yeah. steep with with just three steeplechase runs under his belt. Would it? I'd be a genius. I'd be a genius, wouldn't I? What? Even more of a genius than you already are. <laughs> what are you looking for, Nick? <laughs> but uh, are you? Well, I'm looking for you to win the race. That would be that would be handy. But oh, hey, hey, there's two of us in it, Nick. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you've won the race before with War of Attrition. Do you think he's got the fundamental quality to win a Gold Cup? He has the quality. Yeah. The only thing he has is a real turn of foot. But he's got the gallop and he's got the staying power. Oh, he, he, he stay all day. Stay all day. All right, Mouse. If I was to be clear, we'd, we'd say the difference between War of Attrition and him, War of Attrition would win over two miles. Mm-hmm. Or even a mile and a half, you know. But yet he'd, he'd stay three miles or three and a half. Yeah, but basically what I'm saying is if, if he does run at Town. He, 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 he would probably take the run, you know? All right, that was trainer Mouse Morris, uh, who holds gentleman's game in the highest regard. If he went to Cheltenham, Jack Keane, with just three chase runs under his belt, even if they do, uh, as Tom Siegel points out in the Racing Post today, uh, include a, a defeat of Iron Maximus by as far as he wanted, a, a very good run over too short a trip, and then a defeat of Brave Man's game, that would be, that would be as Mouse Morris said, it would be a genius move. Well, Miles Morris is a genius, so I think um, it it wouldn't surprise you if he if he pulled it off. Uh, although, obviously, for, for you, Nick, you you probably have heart palpitations during the race, given your affinity and your relationship with the horse. But um, I, I wouldn't put it past Mouse. He's a, a brilliant horseman. We've seen some of the results he's had on the track over the years. He's a great character, a very underrated and underused trainer. But um, it, it would be an amazing feat. But you really wouldn't put it past Mouse, would you? Uh, you wouldn't, um, but he did stress if he goes to Leopardstown for the Irish Gold Cup, he might just be a little short of his absolute optimum for that. It's either that or a, or a race course gallop. It sounds unlikely that it's the Cotswold Chase, though that option is is still there. Uh, the trade paper, the Racing Post, led this morning with a possible clash between the two biggest British hopes for the Cheltenham Gold Cup, Brave Man's Game and Shishkin, and that might take place in the Denman Chase at Newbury. Paul Nichols and Nicky Henderson both toying with that idea and it would be a departure from Nichols's uh, previous preparation for the race with Brave Man's Game who went straight there from Christmas. Um, do you think it's likely to unfold and if the two of them met round Newbury who would you favour at a flat three miles? Uh, I would unfortunately favor, lean towards it's, it's unlikely to happen. I, I, I do feel that Brave Man's Game in particular he's had a very busy first half of the season he's, he's, he's already had three runs um, he had a hard race again in the King George. It wouldn't surprise me if Nichols kind of erred on the side of freshening him up and, and getting him to the Gold Cup in nice, nice and fresh. But uh, if they were to meet, obviously it would be a fantastic clash. You know, five weeks out from the festival, we aren't really used to seeing those sorts of clashes in in mid February these these days. But I think a flat three miles round there, if it was decent ground, I think 
you know, Newbury is slightly more a speedy speed track as opposed to Cheltenham. So I think it would it would suit Shishkin a little more. I do think he has slightly more toe than than Brave Man's game. And obviously, Paul Nichols speaking about the King George a couple of weeks ago, he was saying Brave Man's game was pretty much flat out for the first circuit of the King George, um, which is interesting, seeing as we always used to think of him as a as a slightly suspect stayer when he goes beyond three miles. Maybe he's just developed a little bit more stamina and he's become a little bit more of a, a grinder as he's as he's getting older. But I do feel the Shishkin would maybe have a little bit more toe around Newbury. So I'd, I'd slightly lean in, in his favour if they were to have a clash around there. What, what about you? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm wondering whether we, we ought to reconsider what type of horse Brave Man's game is. And I wonder whether this notion that he doesn't really get much further than three miles has just been born of a mistaken conflation of him with other previous Nichols horses like Silvianarco Conti, for example, who never got up the hill at Cheltenham and Clan des Obo, who never really liked it around Cheltenham. Brave Man's game was brilliant around there last year in the Gold Cup and seemed to stay it really pretty well i mean seven length defeat to galapan des at the end of a really well run gold cup no disgrace and just looking at looking at his figures 177 racing post rating and a much more attritional king george than the one he ran in last year 175 Chelton, 173 punch down 170 167 back to 172 in the king george last time it's a it's a, a good consistent portfolio at the highest level and certainly consistent at the highest level to think that 20 to 1 for the Gold Cup is quite a good each way price because at least you know he's good enough to be competing in it and good enough to give Galapin Deschamps a race. And that's not something you can be sure of with many of the others. No, you're absolutely spot on. If you just look at his, his track record over the years, he's been the model of consistency, hasn't he? And as you say, he he took, he, I think he landed over the last pretty much upsides Galapin Deschamps last year. And Galapin, obviously, went away again in the last 100, 150 yards. But it was a huge effort. He was a clear second. What was he? Seven or eight lengths clear of conflated or something back in third. So it was a, a monster effort. He, he's just been so consistent at this top level. We know how good a target trainer Paul Nichols is. He's going to have him absolutely A1 on the day. And I would be amazed if he wasn't in the three, to be honest, uh, given his profile. So I think you're right. 20 to one each way is a the stonking each way bet because we know he's going to be there and you know he's going to run his race. So the big hurdle race at the weekend in the UK is the Coral Lanzarote Handicap Hurdle. Takes place at 2.40 at Kempton Park. There's an awful lot of Nichols and Henderson at the top of the market, but could this race be headed to Ireland? It could easily be judged on what we've seen so far in some of the British handicaps this season. And if it is, it's likely to go the way of Philip Rothwell's Prince Zaltar. And the trainer joins me now uh, having his best season ever. And this Philip looks... Uh, a horse who is still on the upgrade, even though he's got plenty of experience on his under his belt. Um, like many of your stable, he's found a new lease of life. Yeah, um, he's he's been pretty consistent. Um, I'm lucky. I have a nice bunch of young horses that just have gradually improved a little bit, and uh, he seems to be one of those. He's um, he's a nice horse. Um, he's owned by a syndicate of guys that have a few horses in training in England as well. And um, we took him over to Aintree. I was thrilled with his run because the ground in Aintree would have been just way too soft for him. Um, the the rain came the night before, and we were even even fifty fifty about running him. So um, I could see him running a better race on better on better conditions. So I would hope hope the ground would be that little bit better at the weekend. And not only that, in Sunny Gino, I think you ran into a really pretty well handicapped horse, and you did 
comfortably the best of those that came from a long way off the pace at Aintree. So there's there's yet more encouragement. It makes me think that you believe that his current mark in in England is 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 not too bad a one. Yeah, like um, he would struggle in Irish handicaps just the way they're ran. Um, I think the style of racing in England suits him. Um, the quicker the pace in front of him, the better he seems to be. Um, so that's the main reason we have looked at going across the water. Um, so, yeah, we, I was delighted with him in entry, as I say, because the ground was as soft as it was. Um, but the fact that he ran so well it would definitely have encouraged us to go back. And um, I'm not quite sure what San Gino's best uh, going conditions or most suited going conditions to him are but I know that our horse would be far 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 better on, on on better going so I'd like to think that with the weight pull that we could certainly get closer to him anyway You've bucked the trend in Ireland this season insofar as it's your best season ever um, to date and is going to exceed all previous records by the looks of it well over 30 winners prize money haul is very good you're fifth in the trainers championship and you hear a lot of trainers who've been established for a little while saying, I just can't compete. You clearly are not just competing again, but doing exceptionally well. Big race winners over the Christmas period as well, at big prizes and big handicaps. What's changed? What's different? How's it all come together? Um, there's, there's, there's not a lot changed and not a lot different. Um, I have an exceptional team of staff. I have great support from home. Um, I have really good supportive owners that just love their racing and they're quite happy to leave me do my own thing, uh, which is a, a massive, it's a massive plus, um, takes an awful lot of pressure off. And um, as I said, team of staff at home are second to none, uh, which is a huge, huge help. I, I can't do anything without them. Um, but then I guess like um, three years ago during COVID, we racked up 18 or 19 winners um, and like in a six month season, um, so I believe we've been doing very well for the last sort of three or four years. And uh, this year we're certainly just boxing above our weight. We'd have 55 horses in training. Uh, the guys in front of me and behind me on the trainer's table would have in excess of 200. Um, so we're definitely doing well. Um, but look, we're happy with the number we have. I'm not going to increase it a whole lot. Um, love to stay working at increasing quality a little bit. Uh, but to do that, we need to highlight um, our skills as best we can and show people that we can compete in some of the better races. So so it's a slow build, but like, um, yeah, definitely it's going really well. And also, I, I don't know you well, but I know you of old and remember your enthusiasm and joy from entering the winner's enclosure. You don't always see in every trainer who wear their cares very very heavily. How important is it for you that you're giving your, your owners a good time not not just a winner or two but a good time along the way oh it's a it's it's a massive thing to build up a relationship um with the people that have the horses in the yard because at the end of the day it is an expensive sport and you need them to trust you um so there is a trust element and that's a massive thing and if you can get somebody to to develop a good relationship with you and trust in what you're doing um it gives you great confidence um to to do the best by their horse but it's whatever about giving them a good time along the way winners are so important <laughs> it's all about winning at the end of the day and like i just get such a kick out of winning and i think to give somebody a good time that's how you do it you 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 create you create a winner for them as best you possibly can and uh 
yeah, and go from there. Yeah, it's a lot more fun in the winner's enclosure than it is in Excuses Corner, we know that. Um, Prince Altar has a, a great chance at the weekend, Philip. Um, look forward to seeing you at Kempton. You're, you're more confident than I am, Nick, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would, I would like to think that he's in good form and that he could go there with a sporting chance anyway. Well, if Sonny Gino's a, a hot favourite, then you oughtn't to be four or five places in the betting behind him, I don't think. But yeah, it is a hot race, yes. I grant you. It's a, it's a hot race and I think we need a huge amount of luck in running, especially with his style of running. Um, but as I say, I think the, the better going conditions can have us finish closer to the favourites anyway. All right, that was trainer Philip Rothwell. And of course, we spoke to Ted Walsh yesterday about any second now going to going to Warwick. So it could be big Irish challenges in both the big handicaps at Kempton and at Warwick. There is, however, a conditions race at Cheltenham, a grade two, the Silvianarco Conti, which I mean, if people say, well, these little grade twos that pop up occasionally don't yield much. Well, look at this one. To disprove that theory, you've got uh, Banbridge making his seasonal debut, Joseph O'Brien's stable star, taking on Edward Stone, past Cheltenham Festival winner, and a horse that could easily end up among the favourites for the for the Ryanair chase. Uh, plus, not long till May, and Pick Dory. That's a, that's a hell of a race, Jack Keane. Which way would you be leaning uh, if indeed they all do stand their ground? Yeah, it's a fantastic lineup, isn't it? I mean, I, I really hope that Banbridge does does turn up here. He'd, he'd add a really interesting angle to this race. Um, it, it remains to be seen. Obviously, we haven't seen him for since the end of the last the end of last season. It, it's going to be fan, fascinating to see Edward Stone going up on trip as well, isn't it? It looks as though he's he's been crying out for a, a slightly longer trip, especially on a on a flat track like Kempton. Uh, uh, to me, you can't really escape Pick Dory given his consistency and. You know, he absolutely loves this trip. This is his ideal trip, two and a half, especially around here. He obviously won the race last year. He's he's the one to beat for me, Pick Dory, under these conditions at this track. But, I, I mean, to be honest, you, you'd have difficulty ruling any of the top four or five in the betting out. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be fascinating watching. I, I can't wait to see what Edward Stone does up over, over two and a half, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I, I really hope they all stand their ground. As you say, these grey twos can often be damp squibs but this is anything but yeah seems to have found its place in the calendar that's taking place at Kempton Park this Saturday well interesting development in the Channel 7 coverage of the Magic Millions on Saturday from the the Gold Coast to tell us a bit more Channel 7's uh, Jason Richardson who's a friend of the podcast Uh, Jason what are you guys going to be doing Magic Millions has always been an innovator how's that going to be manifest in the broadcast of, of the event this year Nick, great to chat to you. Happy New Year to you and uh, your awesome audience. Um, well, as always, what we're finding with every sport that's being covered is the audience craves getting up close and personal with the participants. And we saw that, you know, walking down the you know the night fairway at the Open and um, Rory McIlroy putting in some AirPods and being able to chat to uh, the commentators and give some insight. It's the same thought process that we're trying to bring in. I mean, the reality is you, you would love a scenario where every jockey is is mic'd up and has a jockey cam on so that then post-race we can look at all the great vision and listen to the sounds of the sport. But the reality is we haven't got there as a, from a safety point of view or an acceptance point of view. So this is, once again, pushing us a little bit close. I think the jockeys are fantastic with what they're willing to discuss with us at the start of a meeting. We see that, you know, in the morning shows at Royal Ascot, for example, and the jockeys all come on and discuss. But 
This will be a little closer to the action, so a select jockey for each race will come across and uh, put in a hearing device whereby they can chat to the, the host team, um, who we just asking them various questions about the tactics coming up in the race um, and um, giving the, the last-minute insight to all of the audience, which is just yet another way that we as a sport can sell our sport to the next generation, people like you and I, uh, we've grown up with it, we fell in love with it, and I think it's really important with a changing media landscape is we have to keep finding different ways to get the next generation to fall in love with our sport. And at Channel 7, we're obsessed about that, and we cover races every Saturday for 52 weeks a year in Melbourne and Sydney and in Queensland, and we are obsessed about trying to bring that audience uh, along for the journey. So this is just a little uh, step that we're trialling on Magic Millions Day and uh, good acceptance from the, the stewards and the jockeys. So it should be a bit of fun. And is there evidence that you can still grow a network TV audience in, in Australia, given how often you're on? That's a great question. I mean, what we've found is if we put together quality products, the audience will watch it and the will, they will consume it. They will be the rusted on viewers who every Saturday are expecting our coverage of Melbourne and Sydney and, and then the feature races from around Australia. They expect that. They expect the level of quality of broadcast that we give them. But then for the big features, and whether that be an Everest or that, a Cox Plate, they, that, that audience does grow. Now, does it grow to a level that it was when you and I were kids? Um, maybe not. And maybe that's an, in, you know, an indication of the way that the media landscape has changed in regards to free-to-air television versus streaming services. But the one thing that free-to-air television has the advantage over streaming services is live sport. And that's why live sport, and then that's including our great sport of horse racing, is so um, is, you know so popular with the free-to-air networks and they, they are so desperate to gain the rights of it because that is the one thing that you can't pause and uh, or fast-track through the ads. If you're watching live sport, you must consume it in that free-to-air platform. We've got anti-siphoning rules here for sporting events that have significance as well to make sure that they are on free-to-air, um, and that includes all of our feature big race meetings as well. So um, will it grow? Well, we're trying our hardest to make sure it does. And to what extent do the networks recoup uh, the the money they're spending on the on the terrestrial broadcast rights with with gambling advertising? Well, I presume I mean I, I don't know the dollars and cents, but uh, it certainly is a profitable part of their uh, overall sport budget, um, horse racing, because uh, the, the way that the changes at the moment are in gambling in sport, uh, especially in Australia, real lockdown in regards to um, sports advertising or sports gambling advertising in across other sports. However, there's a carve out for horse racing mm. because horse racing mm -hmm. is, of course, uh, funded by gambling. So the fact that uh, you know, Seven's been you know, front and centre with uh, Racing Victoria and Racing New South Wales to ensure that we continue to carve out yeah. um, horse racing. So, yeah, it so, is so, a good part of yeah. the Channel 7 business. And that's one of the reasons I asked. It's a very similar situation to, to, to what's unfolding here here as well um i suppose that the the key question that I, i'm interested to know is could do you think that your broadcast rights of of horse racing at your terrestrial broadcast rights um would still be worth plenty to a network even without gambling advertising so is it is it a landscape that's sustainable without the gambling advertising 
or it makes it awfully tough without the gambling advertising you, you could imagine. So if you eliminate gambling advertising, then you're trying to attract me, you know, partners that have yeah, that want to showcase their brand in something that it's associated with uh, the racing industry. And that's a huge challenge for racing. It's a huge challenge for us at uh, Channel 7. to be a huge challenge for ITV um, in the UK is what brands are willing to partner up with racing to the point where you could um, fund it because uh, it's an expensive sport to cover. There's no doubt in that. Could you cover it to the point where you didn't need gambling advertising? Oh, gee, that's that's a, that's a really really tough one. Um, it's hard to see that space, but um, at the moment we continue to make sure that uh, the gambling advertising, um, which funds the industry, especially in Australia, and the unbelievable prize money we've got, we make sure that uh, they're still able to be partners with us. All right, thanks to Richo, and thanks to all my guests on the show today, Philip Rothwell and Mouse Morris, Nevin Truesdale, and Paul Johnson. Jack Keane from The Sun is still with me and has something for you for today. Yep, Nick, we're going to go to Sovel on the all-weather this evening. I'm going to go in the half-seven race. Uh, Enola Gray, who is seeking a hat-trick for uh, trainer Gemma Tutti. I was impressed uh, with his win at Newcastle last time. out. showed a decent turn of foot there. He's, he's only gone up a few pounds. Um, and Ethan Jones has taken off a, a handy £7 allowance as well. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that Enola Gray in the 7.30 can complete the hat-trick at Subble. All right, Jack, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, leave us a rating and a review wherever you consume them. And don't forget, also, you can catch this podcast every day on the Racing app. And if you haven't listened to the first in our uh, series of American podcasts, you can do so now. Episode one is widely available to you. Uh, all right, that's it from me. I'll be back again to do it all tomorrow. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.